Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of No Happy Endings. This week we are looking at the film Sons of Cuba, and I'll be speaking to the director of that film, Andrew Lang. Sons of Cuba is a 2009 documentary that takes you right into La Finca, the Havana Boxing Academy, where we're going to follow three young kids, all with huge dreams of where sports can take them in Cuban society. One of the really interesting things about this film is it is delineated by these kids coming up with Fidel Castro as the leader of Cuba, and then in the middle of the film, he steps down from power with a mysterious illness, which actually becomes a state secret. And you see these kids confronting what could come next, and some of them are anticipating possibly another invasion like the Bay of Pigs, but it's a really fascinating exploration of Cuban society through these three extraordinary kids, especially Christian Martinez. And he is somebody that I interviewed when I made a documentary called Split Decision, looking at Teofilo Stevenson, Felix Sabone, Guillermo Rigandiao. Uh, the floodgates opened shortly after Sons of Cuba, and I followed up with Christian at 16 years old. He's now, I think he's 25. So this is a really powerful film. A lot of people suggested on social media it was one that we should dive into for this series. And I hope you enjoy Sons of Cuba and my conversation with Andrew Lang. Well, no, I'm interested in how it's changed. I mean, we're, what, 14 years since you started shooting it, right? God, that's frightening. I didn't... Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess so. Um, it's a long time. Um, but, yeah, it's still... I guess it's still... Um, still still a big part of me. You know, it was very, uh very moving experience making that film, and... Um, and I still keep in touch with Christian. I still keep in touch with Yosvani. Um, and I guess I guess the shame is that they, it doesn't look like those kids have quite achieved the dreams they set out to. Uh, you know, back when, back at the time when we were making the film. Well, I mean, I put out a little poll on Twitter to ask what films and documentaries people would be most interested in talking to the filmmakers with, and yours came up very quickly. And Hoop Dreams seems to be, as I was rereading the reviews and, and the awards that your film got, um, Hoop Dreams also, is it ultimately, is it fair to say a tragic story in terms yeah. of kids thought they would go to where they ended up? So I'd love to hear just first what, what has happened with these characters or with your career as a result of this film? And then let's go back to where you found it and, and go through that. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, yeah, Hoop Dreams, what a, what a great reference. I mean, that, um, I always remember that scene where one of the players leaves the coach's uh, office and, and the coach says something like, there goes another one. Um, so, so I think in Hoop Dreams, the tragedy actually happens during, during the film. Um, I, I guess my, my film was ultimately a, not a tragedy in itself at all. I mean, it was, it ended quite hopefully in terms of the kids, the kids' dreams for their future. Um, but, um, s since then, I mean, I guess this is, 
this is not a great surprise. I mean, when you talk to a, uh, a, a very young child about what they, they hope to do as an adult, it rarely ends up being, you know, um, something that materializes. But um, uh, I guess the, the person who's got the closest, and, I, and I, I th I'm not sure how much you know about him, but Christian, who was the star of the film, um, is uh, left Cuba f uh, several years ago. I, I don't know very specifically the details of his life, but we do keep uh, loosely in touch. And um, and he's now, uh, I believe, in Slovenia, and he's he's got married. I think he went there um, to uh, with with some kind of promise of being on the Olympic team, and then something fell through, and and he then tried to make his way as a professional, and I think he's struggling uh, with that goal. But you can see him on on Instagram under son of son of Cuba is his handle. Interestingly, um, and so he's really the one who who is most present in my mind. And then Yosvani, the the coach, we keep in touch on Facebook. He recently got on Facebook, like a lot of people in Cuba. It took a while, and he um, he is still coaching, and he's actually done a course in film producing. Um, and we've talked about that a little bit. So you can see the, the impact that the film had in these people's minds and careers to some extent. But it would have been lovely, of course, to see Christian go to the Olympics and win an Olympic gold. And then, you know, that would have been the perfect fairy tale. Um, and and I, it, I guess it looks like that. At least the Olympic part of it, it isn't going to happen. Although he still is, you know, his life is boxing. Um, Although, uh, yeah, I think I think he's he's struggled a bit. It's fair to say. Well, and I mean, we can get into this later, but I I followed up with him right around 2011. Yeah, and, of course he did. And also with his trainer who was with him, and I mean, I would really like to get into because I mean, why I wanted to talk to him is you were confronting a very huge rupture in Cuba when Fidel Castro stepped down in 2006 with this mysterious state secret illness. And you had some of the characters of, of your film saying, you know, when they invade us again to the last man, we'll be fighting and that kind of thing. Um, whereas when I caught up with Christian and Yosbani, uh, it was a very different landscape in terms of, uh, almost all of the Olympic boxers and baseball players had left. And I found that increasingly they were more and more comfortable, regular people and athletes agreeing with the reasons why they were leaving. There seemed to be a seismic shift there in, in this kind of referendum of why you would stay and why you would go with the great champions of the past um, still maintaining the revolutionary line. But I, I was so concerned and fascinated by how that would be impacting Christian, sort of torn between his two favorite boxers, Teofilo Stevenson, the most famous boxer who stayed, and Rigandiao, the at the time, the most famous boxer who left. So I, I wonder if we can just go back to the beginning to how you found these characters, how you were able to film in the Finca, which was virtually impenetrable for filmmakers, 
and what Cuba was like back then compared to what it is now. Yeah, so I, I came to the film because I went to the uh, film school just outside Havana and I did a short documentary course. Um, and just before uh, going on that course, which was a month long in 2004 or early 2005, I read an article in the Times in the UK about, um, you know, this incredible um, production line of Olympic boxers. And I thought that would be an interesting story. And I, and I kind of had in mind that I'd maybe go and make a short film about a, a teenager who's on the brink of the national team. And then, of course, you get out there. And I had the experience that I'm sure you had as well, where you see these very young children boxing very intensively. And it's, it's incredibly impressive and, um, and, and moving and, and shocking in some degree. And I realized that that, that naturally had to be the film. And I started shooting uh, in 2006, um, straight, shortly after being on the documentary course. And the footage in the film where you see a very young Christian uh, crying his eyes out because he's just lost a fight was one of the first things I shot when I barely knew him. Mm. Um, and I kind, of, I kind of glued onto him as a character because I had filmed that scene with him and it was so, it was so impactful. Um, and then from there, it was a long, long process of putting together a team and getting permissions to be able to shoot. Uh, as you say, it's, you know, it's one thing to just be able to shoot in the, on an afternoon in Rafael Trejo and Havana Vieja, you know, uh, in that famous, um, famous uh, boxing venue. But to be there for months and months, as I was eventually, I was there, over you know for a year on and off um it takes a lot more um organization in terms of permits and 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 the big fear obviously particularly uh, as you've referenced with fidel falling ill was the kind of paranoia in cuba at the time and the the i i was constantly looking over my shoulder and thinking that i was about to get booted out and the way i avoided that was we we put together a crew of, of cuban filmmakers and so I was the only foreigner who was in that crew. Hmm. Um, and I had a local producer, a local sound guy, a local driver, and we just kept it very light. Um, and often on official permits, um, we said that I was, we didn't put my name as the director, we put my Cuban producers down as the director. Um, so yeah, so it'd be less threatened by, by the idea of a foreign journalist, you know, kind of looking at this stuff which would have got them very nervous if they'd known about it. Do you think, I mean, what can you say as a filmmaker about, like, I, I occasionally have people, because having written a couple books about Cuba uh, and some of the journalism, they say, you know, what, what kind of, how can I recreate what you saw in Rafael Trejo or Kid Chocolate? How do I see that? And I'm always left with, like my documentation very much like sons of cuba is now a time capsule these don't exist anymore mm. cuba as we saw it is not that way anymore it's it's not to say that um in some ways it's improved in some ways there's more income inequality but to be a filmmaker going to cuba now is not at all what it was when you were there or when i was trying to interview 
uh, Tafula Stevenson or Felix Sabone. Now there's much more openness. There's internet. There's cell phones. I didn't really see any of those things until probably 2008, 2009 was the first time I saw cell phones being used. And almost nobody was on Facebook or really using email. Uh, how how difficult was it for you? I mean, I'd never seen the Finca before you filmed it, like on on screen before. Mm. Yeah, I think it was just a long, long process of submitting proposals to, um, I believe there was a, a sports body who was overseeing our project and also a kind of media body. And um, I forget the names of them exactly, but our producers were going to see them pretty much on a monthly basis. Um, and, and when I say producers, they, they were just two um, young Cuban filmmakers who I'd met through the film school, um, uh, who you, were kind of on board for, for helping me make this. And they would regularly go and say, this is what we filmed, this is what we're going to film. And, and we slowly got permission to go around the Finca but it was it was quite a controlled visit. You know, we went to um, a training session. Um, we filmed the kids walking around, looking at all the pictures, which is in the film, obviously. We did some interviews with, um, I think, Pedro Roque, who was, the, who was the, the lead coach at the time, who's since also uh, defected. Um, and, and that was it. So we were in and out within within a couple of hours. Um, but in terms of how Cuba's changed, I mean, you could probably speak more to that than I can. I mean, I haven't been back there since 2010, so a long, long time. Was uh, What was it like for you with these kids? Um, I'm going to be interviewing Steve James, not so much about Hoop Dreams, but about his modern projects that also are looking in many ways at kids and school systems in America, the mayoral race in Chicago. I mean, looking at all these systemic ways in which America seems to be really struggling. Um, but with, with regard to hoop dreams, um, having kids with these dreams, what was it like to see, see the, the Cuban version of that up close? You know, where <laughs> it's I, I just don't for people unacquainted with Cuba. I mean, you could be a brain surgeon and making twelve dollars a month. And yet all sports are free. All cultural events are free. These are some of the most literate. It's one of the most literate cultures in the world. I mean, how did you see it coming from where you did in London? Uh, the pros and cons of the, the Cuban experiment and, and the revolutionary fervor about what was implicit and explicit with this kind of social contract it had with many of the Cubans that you were filming and talking to and all that? Mm. Well, in terms of the, the politics and the benefits of the political system, we were, of course, making our film focused on very young people um, and people within a, 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 an end of the system that was particularly extreme, you know, as a kind of closed boarding school that was training potential Olympic boxers to bring glory and prestige to Cuba. So we were very much at the, both at the naive end of the spectrum, but also at the extreme end of the spectrum. Um, so what you don't get much of in my film is any kind of overt, if any, 
overt criticism of the system. Outside of making the film, I was hearing that criticism from other friends and people off camera. But inside the film, the, 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 the criticism of the system, if there was any, was implicit through um, the, the living conditions, the harshness of the system, um, the, the, how hard the kids were driven. But I thought there was something um, quite beautiful in the naive, in the kind of naive, and I, and I say naive not 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 in in a pejorative sense, but the kind of very pure belief in the system that these kids had, and and their belief that they were uh, involved in something uh, noble and worthwhile, and of course in that very childish belief that your that if you work hard your dreams will come true which which unfortunately you know as, as you become an adult you 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 learn we all learn that that's not always the case and and in a sense that the the kids trajectory within the film was was kind of a metaphor in a sense for the for the for the experience of the Cuban revolution where you have this 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 very pure belief in in a system that um has a, a huge number of benefits. Um, and the belief is that if you work really hard and you sacrifice, that this sacrifice will pay off into something, into, into a better life. Um, and, and I think, you know, when you look at the experience of the Cuban revolution now, you can say that in, in many spheres that, that hasn't been the result of, the Cuba, of all this sacrifice. You could argue that in some areas it has been the result of the sacrifice, but in many it hasn't. And also in the kids' personal journeys, that hasn't all this sacrifice hasn't paid off. So there's a kind of there's a kind of a, a purity and a beauty within their within their their belief. And and we certainly saw a lot of very positive things um, about the system and about the way these kids were and about the way the teachers were. And I think that comes through in the film, but also a kind of underlying, an underlying sadness and a, and a kind of impending tragedy. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's interesting. I think what you illustrate is what I've tried to say to people who ask about Cuba, where they say, is it as poor as, as I've been told? Is it, you know, is it really impoverished? They're all living in poverty. And I said, well, in New York, one of the wealthiest cities in the world, I see homelessness everywhere. I've never seen a homeless person in Havana ever. Um, in a material sense, I'd say they're impoverished beyond that they have health care where you know, we're about to, in the United States, about to overturn the Affordable Care Act where 24 million people are about to go uninsured. Um, and I mean, also your film coincides when you're filming it with the, the economic collapse that happens outside of Cuba, which is interesting, as everybody's talking about how long can the Cuban system go on, America and Wall Street are triggering a global recession, mm. um, <laughs> and nobody's questioning capitalism, that we should, we should look into that. You know, is there something about this system that's leading to such calamity? Um, I thought that your film showed beautifully the things that Cuba does have that, that I never had growing up in Vancouver, and I, did, I certainly haven't found it living in New York, is um, no children af afraid to talk to strangers, the safety that women felt walking in the streets, um, just how robust and verdant the culture was 
there compared to anywhere else that I've ever seen. And um, the investment of these people around the three characters that you highlight along with the coach um, seem to just blow people away with mm. um, unexpected revelations, I thought. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, it's that's very well put what all you all you, all that you said about the, the 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 good side of cuba and and i think um what i experienced and what i hope we captured to some degree in the film was was just these very subtle kind of um kindnesses and um the the way people uh really look out for each other and the way that in some degree, the lack of a, a, a very competitive economic system uh, engenders a, 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 a kind of a community spirit that I, 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 I like you, have found lacking in, in, in my background and upbringing. Um, and I think, you know, you can argue about whether, you know, I've had arguments with Cuban friends about whether this is a result of the political system or this is simply a Cuban thing, mm. uh, that, that all Cubans anywhere in the world are like this. But I certainly found um, uh, kindness, patience, um, an incredible capacity for, for work and, and you know, suffering and hardship that was born um, always with very, very good naturedly and with very good nature. Um, and and you know and I think I think the the real uh, the best illustration of that in the film is probably the the coach Yosvani who was who is someone who you know I've never come across such a dedicated um, teacher someone who is so invested and so willing to give his time and energy and sense of humor and encouragement um, you know he was really the the best. The, you know, the best of Cuba in that sense. Do, I mean, <clears throat> was it interesting for you to be filming at a time where so many of the great athletes that Cuba has and, and I, when I was writing about them, I was trying to think, how do you sum them up to people that don't know much about them? And, and the most logical thing was um, that this is the most expensive human cargo on earth is the Cuban athlete, whether they be a boxer or a baseball player. If they're a baseball player and they wash up in Miami, they could be worth $200 million the next day with a contract that they would sign. Um, you're there right when the floodgates are opening for this human capital to be leaving and this venture humanitarianism of, of a kind of modern slave trade where we're seeing big articles written about Yasiel Puig and several of the other athletes being smuggled off, boxers and baseball players. Um, what was that like as a backdrop for these athletes? I mean, you touched on it a little bit with the coach talking to, to his students about what was happening with some of their favorite boxers. Um, but, I mean, that was a major, major event in Cuba at the time yeah. of filming. Yeah, I mean, the, the defection of uh, Gamboa, Solis and Jan Bartelami that we covered in the film um, was, was, as you say, a real turning point. There'd never been a, a big defection of, of gold medal winning boxers like that en masse. And it did open the floodgates. Um, many more top level boxers have defected since. 
Um, and I think for the kids, that was uh, devastating. You know, it was it was you, you've you've been told to um, believe in one certain system, and you've been told and you've believed that these certain people are representatives of that certain system. And and then these people uh, quite clearly illustrate that they no longer believe in the system or that they believe in another system more or they want to go and find something new. Um, and so I think that was um, a, a, a turning point for the kids to the extent where even when we went back to Havana in 2010 to premiere the film, the kind of things the kids were saying about the system and about boxing were quite different from what they were saying in the film. And that might just be the process of growing up a couple of years. I mean, it's it's partly that. I mean, I think, um, you know, gr growing up in Cuba is, is, a, is a constant process of, of, of opening your eyes more and more. Um, uh, but yeah, it was, it's very, very interesting. And it's, it's very sad as well, seeing these guys uh, arrive in the US or in other parts of the world and, and try and make their way with varying degrees of success. Um, and, and I know you and I have talked about this, you know, in the past, but it, it is very, very tough for them. It, you know, simply being an Olympic boxer or, or a top level baseball player isn't, isn't enough equipment to, um, to, to cope with the pressures of, of, of being a top level sportsman where a lot of money is, is around you and, and a lot of unscrupulous people are often around you. Um, and I think, um, you probably know more about this than me, but I think a lot of these boxers have really struggled in their professional, in their professional careers, but also in their personal lives, I imagine. Well, and many of them are leaving behind entire support networks of family, friends, the only culture they've ever known. Most of the boxers are not urbane Havana people. They're, they're rural people from the countryside. You know, often the biggest beneficiaries of the revolution are, are their parents who uh, Rigan Yao, uh, his mother supported him and his, his father disowned him. I think that that... That is the real most identifiable corrosive legacy of the revolution is that it split every family. Yeah. And, you know, because some people believed in it and some didn't. And whether they believed in it or they didn't, you know, there was a cost to that position <laughs> or there was a cost to being on the fence. Um, you know, it's complex stuff, but the emotions are not complex. They're incredibly intense. Um, mm. And I, I wonder for you, I mean, for, for Christian to leave, um, and so many of the others, to go from what you saw of Cuban society, communism, how limited you know, their resources are going to be for their skills, um, into kind of the ugliest impulses of capitalism that professional boxing represents, where you're so alone, you're so vulnerable. And many of these kids don't speak English. So it's a real challenge to promote themselves to an English speaking country. Um, at least in the US, obviously, you're much more marketable if you can speak English for now. I think that's changing rapidly. Um, but it just seems like a real cultural shock for them to make the adjustment to anywhere but Cuba. Um, is that something that you talk to some of the cast about as they've left is sort of making a new home and a new life? Yeah, I mean, I mean, 
I've had a few insights into that. I mean, I've I've heard it said that if you um, if you're over thirty when you leave Cuba, you're really going to struggle um, to adjust because you've grown up in a system where you don't have to think that much about um, about things like you know mortgages and investments and bank accounts and and uh, all these kind of uh, things that that we deal with in modern life and 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 changing tracks into a system um, where there are all these extra skill sets required to live effectively, which you don't have, is is very, very challenging. And actually, um, a few years after Sons of Cuba, I went to Miami and made for WNET a seven-minute documentary about some of the boxers who defected. Mm. And I interviewed Gamboa and Bartolomé and uh, Rigondiao and Gamboa turned up to the interview in his in his sports car um, and I think someone said to me uh, kind of off camera um, you know these guys they'll, they'll, they'll get paid a certain amount of money on one day and they'll buy you know on, on a Saturday and by the Tuesday of the next week they spent all that money plus another two twenty thousand um, and uh, and so you know you can see this 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 difficulty with just with just working with 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 money, um, and then we interviewed uh, Rigondiao, and it was a really extraordinary interview. And this interview has never been used anywhere. Um, but we sat down to interview him. He just defected, um, and you know, we were in a kind of cocktail bar in Miami where Luis de Cuba had taken us. And as soon as the camera went on, and I asked Rigondiao about his defection, he spoke as if he was still in the Cuban Olympic team. You know, it was all about the Comandante and the, the Cuban Revolution and discipline. Wow. And, 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 and I remember Luis de Cuba just looking at him with wide eyes and not being able to understand what this guy was going on about you know, because we were sitting there in a cocktail bar in Miami. Um, and, and I think, you know, reflecting on what was happening there, that, that Rigondiao had just been trained for so many years that this was how you responded to interviewers, that he had just um, gone back into his, his routine set of answers, but also possibly that he was protecting his family back in Cuba by not saying the wrong thing. And, um, and, and, you know, he was thinking about where this film might be shown if he was seen um, supporting defection or criticizing Castro or the revolution. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. I'd love to see that. Um, I think I got to him a year after his defection or, or several months after in Tijuana was the first place. And what energy like is from these people like like he wouldn't talk about the defection itself but he did make the point to his assistant who came to me after we filmed to say it was by far the most traumatic event of his life getting into that smuggler's boat and trying to make his way into the US from Mexico was mm. incredibly traumatizing now that's changed tremendously i i don't you know christian didn't leave on a smuggler's boat as so many other athletes had to do that's changed dramatically with them opening up visa privileges and that kind of thing but 
nonetheless, I mean, you documented so powerfully this Cuban family connection that's there, um, the connection with his mother and, and father who had um, quite a pedigree in his own right as a boxer. Christian just seemed to be the most complex consciousness on display about being tugged in both directions a little bit of the past and the future of Cuba, I thought. I, I, that was my sense of him anyway. Yeah, and I think, you know, my, my experience of Cubans outside of Cuba is that even though sometimes they won't admit it, I think there's still some of that um, ambiguity and mixed feeling. Um, you know, they, they, they tend to be, and Christians included in this, you know, incredibly proud of being Cuban, incredibly proud of where they've come from, of, you know, if they're a boxer, of being part of the Cuban boxing system. Um, obviously, uh, as you've mentioned, they're uh, incredible family people. Um, and and the the degree to which they miss home is is tends to be f- you know ferocious, um, and there's also this kind of um, you know a lot of these people are very, lead very simple but dignified lives in Cuba, um, and they have a certain stature within the within society. Um, that even though life is so tough, they 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 have that stature. They go to another country and they're they're a nobody. They know no one. They don't speak the language. They're away from their family. They have no friends, and it's a it's it's a really sad um, and difficult process that they go through. I think a film that captures that really well is is Balseros. I don't yeah. know if you've seen that. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. It's it's so sad. Yeah. Yeah, I remember thinking that when I when I watched that film that that um some of these people uh they they kind of looked themselves when they were in Cuba. You know, they they kind of inhabited their own skin and they had that kind of confidence and pride and suddenly they're in the US and and they look they look lost and um and 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 not like themselves anymore. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I, I, I often thought when I was there in Cuba, there was the feeling of a bit like being Zab- Abraham Zapruder, that it's like it doesn't take a great cameraman. If you happen to have a camera at Dealey Plaza and Kennedy's going by and you're filming it, yeah. you have incredible stuff. Nobody's going to be concerned with the cinematography. And there is an element of that with Cuba where – just to go to any sporting event or cultural event, the way they were doing it was so idiosyncratically theirs, you know, with no advertising dictating it or the pauses or the way that you have to metabolize the event. I mean, you were saying about Rigandiao um, being stage managed for interviews, but he never gave interviews to the international media. None of mm-hmm. them did. How mm-hmm. many interviews are there of Teofilo Stevenson or Felix Sabone? Virtually none. Mm. Yes, yeah. he wasn't coached. I'm sure he was, but certainly not for the media. None of them spoke to the media. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, because the only star that Cuba ever produced, as far as the government was concerned, was the system. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, yeah. I, I guess, I guess the 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 loosening of the mind is 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 something that. That, that takes a long time. Um, 
and and some manage better than others but it's certainly you know i think if you if you leave cuba where you're in the the national boxing team and you're in this incredibly tightly controlled hermetically sealed environment um and then you go from that to miami and the it's just like light and day it's an intense capitalism it's a it's a highly competitive environment it's and and i don't think anyone is equipped to make that transition comfortably or without making many mistakes and um and i think you know it, it, i'm sure if you knew a lot about the boxers who have made that transition you'd see that difficulty in all of their trajectories well and i wonder what you make i mean on top of that is that cubans in florida do not financially support any of the athletes that they're desperate to defect to undermine the revolution and and communism and all of that but once they get to florida as boxers or as baseball players it's a notorious area for not supporting their sports teams where they have these cuban stars that arrive so you have huge financial support of the Mexican-American community for Mexican-American boxers in California and Texas, or Puerto Rican boxers enormously supported on the East Coast in New York. And yet Cubans come to Miami and have absolutely no marketability in the sport. They're despised in the sport precisely because of that, because they're very good boxers and they have no ability to generate money for the people managing and promoting them. Why do you think that is? Why is it that of, of these different Hispanic and Latinx groups um, that Cubans aren't supported by their own people in Florida? Do you know, it's, it's an interesting point you've raised and it's, I must admit, it's one I don't know very much about. You know, my, my experience of Miami is, is uh, you know, two weeks in, in 2012, I think. Um, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't hazard a guess, you know, is it, is it because, is it on a technical level that the box, that the boxing that they're trained to, to practice in Cuba is, is less entertaining than what the professional market requires? Or do you think it goes, goes much aspect. deeper than that? Well, I think it, it must go to something deeper than that. I mean, you have examples in baseball where and boxing where it's raised that most of the great athletes that are leaving are afro-cuban and most mm -hmm. of the people that left uh when castro took power were white cubans mm -hmm. so that that racial component is something that i have seen raised in in many different places um but it's uh it, yeah it's a curious phenomenon because if if you're a great puerto rican boxer who doesn't learn in english the puerto ricans love him even more for it for staying yeah. to his culture and language. Yeah, it's interesting. Maybe, maybe they feel maybe the old Cuban uh, population, um, the, the the kind of the, the the Miami Cubans who've been there for longer, see a certain allegiance to the revolution historically in those people who've come over, and 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 maybe they also, in the case of sportsmen, they see that they've they're very much product. They're very much children of the revolution. They're very much you know, being formed by that revolution. And, and that, uh, maybe that has something to do with what you're describing. Um, but I do know that, you know, Miami's not for everyone. And I certainly have um, 
several Cuban friends who told me that they, the one place they wouldn't live is, is in Miami and they've ended up in places, you know, in, in Europe and other parts of the United States. Um, and I'm sure this, you know, what you're what you're referring to now is is part of that. Um, I guess just kind of closing out. What are what are some of the most memorable moments that you captured and also that you just experienced while you were making this film? Oh wow, there'd be so many. I mean, in terms of in terms of the filming, I think um, as anyone who's seen the film will know, it's a very emotional film in the sense that the people on camera become incredibly emotional i think every single main character cries at least once in in that film um and seeing some of those moments where where the characters are, are moved to tears is certainly you know for a documentary maker who's relying on real life to bring strong emotions to the screen uh, absolute gold dust you know i think of the moment where the, the coach of the losing Matanzas team breaks down at the national championships and and Yosvani just hugs him, you know, incredibly moving, beautiful moment to, to film. And then, you know, Christian's father being in tears at the national championships, you know, when his son had won, also incredibly, you know, unforgettable moments. And then on a personal level, I think um, it was such a roller coaster ride. You know, we... It, it, around the film there were there were peaks and troughs of um there was one stage very early on in my in my time in Havana where um I was staying with a friend from the film school and um this would have been about 2006 and the neighbor reported us because you're not allowed or you, you weren't allowed in that time to have people as your house guest unofficially and uh, following that, we were we were hauled in front of the police for three or four days running and, and taken to separate rooms and questioned. Um, they threatened to take her house away at one stage um, as, as a punishment. Um, and, and that was when you really saw how frightening uh, Cuba can get. You know, you, d you don't have a leg to stand on. I mean, I would have been fine as a foreigner. I'd have, I would have just gone home, but she could have she could have lost everything um and and that was certainly a very a very unpleasant and uh, memorable memorable experience where did you go i mean the response to this film what was it like for you 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 t took it around the world to many different countries it seemed to have win won festivals and that kind of thing were you surprised by the response to this um I, I always knew that it was uh, the material that we were shooting was was very powerful. Um, but you know any any film the the dividing line between success and failure seems to be paper thin. Um, and I was just incredibly grateful that the film did uh, after a little while of you know do, kind of came out in one or two festivals and and then it really gathered momentum and went to festivals all over the world and and won lots of prizes and and i, I was just incredibly relieved to be quite honest <laughs> after all the time we'd put into it um not just me but also the kids the the trainers their parents the the cubans who i work with um that that finally it was it was getting seen and it was and it was um moving people because 
you know, it won't come as, as a surprise to anybody that you you don't make films like that for money. Um, you know, financially, it was it was very tough for for for, for everyone involved. Um, so yeah, it was just it was just a, a real relief and a real pleasure to 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 see it do well and sometimes to stand in, at the front of the cinema and see people you know with tears in their eyes when they're watching it um it was you know you couldn't you couldn't ask for more really how much did the film aim for film students people aspiring to get into documentary how much did a film like this cost in total to make gosh that's a good question i mean a lot of it was funded um you, you know it was a very um unconventional i'm going to give you a slightly long-winded answer because it was quite unconventional the way we funded it um first of all we got a commission from wnet um to make a 45 minute uh documentary um for a strand called wide angle um and that that came out in 2007 and it had um voiceover on it which which i hated it was not the kind of film i wanted to make at all yeah. Um, but that was their kind of house style. And so we did that short version for American TV and French TV. And then I took that money that I was paid to make that film and I reinvested it back into going back to Cuba and shooting some more material. And of course, I funded most of the shoot through that TV version um, model. So I think the, the the total cost was probably around something like, you know, 180 dollars um which sounds like a huge amount but it 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 goes in 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 music rights in staying in cuba for a long long time in in archive rights in um editing post-production mastering you know it sounds it sounds like a lot of money but it really it was you know a threadbare um process you know we I was just renting an apartment in Havana, a very, very basic apartment, um, which I was actually doing, you know, illegally because you, you weren't really allowed to do that. But at least I was on my own on that occasion. And, and I was doing things like that because we didn't have enough money to, to, to stay in very expensive hotels in Casa Particulares. Um, so it did, yeah, around, around $200,000. But, um, uh, you know, that was, it was still pretty tough. Yeah. Well, lastly, what have you gone on to do after Sons of Cuba in the ensuing 11 years since this <laughs> came out? Gosh, that's a good question. Um, so I've really been putting my time into uh, trying to perfect screenwriting. Um, you know, I, I really loved the process of making a documentary of Sons of Cuba, but my my interest is kind of uh, at least professionally, I still love watching documentaries, but I, I really aspire to write film scripts now. So my model that I've been pursuing since this film is to fund um, my screenwriting time through directing TV commercials. So I've done a lot more TV commercials than I ever intended to do. And in the meantime, I've spent a lot of time working on scripts um, and really trying to master the craft of screenwriting. Um, and actually this year, this last year, I took the whole year off from commercial directing in order to focus on, on screenwriting. Um, and actually, you know, one of the things I will say for commercial making, even though it has nothing like the kind of soul and, and beauty of, of making a, 
a film, you know, a documentary in Cuba, but it, it does um, teach you a lot of technical skills. Um, you get to work with crews and you get to work with very talented uh, people in all the kind of heads of department. Um, and it also affords you, because it's better paid than documentaries, it affords you time between projects to take off and work on your own things. Um, so it's really been my film school, um, but I, I hope I can kind of make the transition out of that into making long-form feature films or television. If you were forced at gunpoint uh, at Her Majesty's beckoning to be sent back to Cuba to do another documentary, uh, what would that be? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think what frustrates me about documentaries that are made in Cuba that I see is that they don't capture the some of the stuff that we've been talking about today, the kind of nuance of the feeling politically. Um, I think I'd like to make something that somehow got into these very complex mixed feelings that people have about the system and and don't just pay kind of outsider lip service to the system, kind of rose, rose-tinted perspective on Cuba. So I think it would be something to do with, um, with maybe uh, underground music or um, uh, a mixture of kind of something to do with dissident groups or, or I, I think, yeah, just trying to get into... Um, a kind of film that I haven't seen about Cuba, but without it being purely on one side or purely on the other, um, I think that's the kind of film that I've never seen from from Cuba to this day. Uh, yeah, in terms of topic, it's a tricky one. Um, I don't know exactly how you would capture that, but but that would be the kind of the the the, the thematic and emotional aim of a film if I was going to make one in Cuba. Interesting. How old was Christian when you first met him? I think he was eight or nine years old. And now he's 25. Is that right? I think, yeah. Is, is that right? Yeah. Somewhere around that. Something like that. Incredible that the time has passed to allow for that. I mean, I saw some pictures of him on Facebook and, uh, you know, bit by bit of him leaving and, and trying to resume his boxing career from what it was in Cuba after the documentary. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing that this much time has passed. Have you have you spoken to him recently or been in touch with him recently? Um, I think the last time I saw him was when I filmed him with Yosvani just to talk about Rigandiao and and Tefilo Stevenson and just to look yeah. at what he wanted to do, and then maybe a little bit just on Facebook briefly, but not not really a full recap of where he is. Um, I never know, like, I always kind of leave it to them, like, if they want to talk about those kind of things, I don't want to pry. Yeah, sure. There was, there was, I don't know if you saw on the Sons of Cuba uh, Facebook page, um, which was resuscitated just purely for this, um, a journalist did a, an interview with Christian, an article about him. Um, did you see that? I did see it, yeah, a couple yeah. months ago, wasn't it? Yeah, Craig Scott on Boxing Social. 
Um, so yeah, that's that's the latest um, the latest kind of contact that I've had or the latest news update. Yeah, I mean it's funny with these athletes because I mean Olympic uh, Christian looked like such an Olympic prospect, but you know how many pe- there's so few spots for so many incredibly driven athletes and capable athletes um, that it's yeah it's it's amazing to me. I remember watching him. I invited Christian up onto my roof in Central Havana and watching him shadow boxing and just thinking, God, he's 16 years old. But is he is he going to be able to support a family with mm. uh, what his skills are? You just don't know, and and they a lot of the Cubans don't know until they leave and enter the professional game. But it's just uh, what a gamble that these guys yeah. participate in. Yeah, and I, and I I've never known why he didn't make it, why he didn't get into the national team, whether it was. Uh, uh, purely on skill or results or, you know, when I've spoken to him, he's mentioned uh, kind of themes of jealousy and, and, and I, 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 I hope, you know, my, my, my sort of deepest fear is that somehow the, the process of making the documentary engendered some kind of jealousy in other people who weren't involved in it. I think, you know, I did, I did hear about that kind of, and I don't know how big the fallout was, but, um, there was certainly some jealousy around the fact that this particular group of people and him, you know, specifically him, had been highlighted by this documentary um, in in a system where where you know all the emphasis is on being the same. That that struck some people as very unfair, um, and I don't know whether that um, you know ultimately might have hampered his path a bit. Um, certainly could have. I mean, politically, yeah. this is a place where Felix Sabone was allowed to compete for his third Olympic gold medal um, after being defeated by Solis mm. in national championships. But they just said, no, we want another three-time Olympic champion. So he didn't earn it. It was mm. a political decision. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, anything's possible. And, and you know, I think these often these careers are, uh, like any career, you know, these the, the, these pivotal moments of of make or break, and and who knows what those were in his life. I'd I'd you know it'd be a very interesting thing to get to the bottom of. But you know, for now, the 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 thing that always strikes me about him is he's he's the same in many respects. He's the same kid that I knew. You know, he's still very focused and fighting. You know, he's got this dream and he's working on it and. Um, and you know, I, I just admire him deeply for that. Yeah, I loved him. I mean, to see him at sixteen after I'd seen him in your film, I was like, oh, he's already a young man. It, mm. You know, just that that kid has been left behind. And just talking to him for two or three minutes, and and he's kind of just like, okay, enough talk. Put some gloves on so we can fight. And I thought, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like I I don't know that that makes any sense, but I would yeah. like to watch you do your thing. Yeah, brilliant. Lovely. But, you know, I hope I hope he finds um, some success and 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 satisfaction out of out of uh, you know his new life, and that um, that there's some that there's some reward. Maybe maybe it's not exactly the reward that he that he set out for when he was when he was a kid, when I was filming him, but, but that somewhere, you know, there's some kind of collateral benefit and, 
and that the incredible amount of work that he's put into his craft, uh, you know, pays some kind of dividends at some point. No, I, I totally agree with you. And I mean, not unlike we started with Hoop Dreams to see somebody where they're talked about as a Hall of Fame basketball player and just one moment where a knee injury means physically you can't go forward with that dream. You've lost your passport to what your talent and potential meant you deserved. It's, uh, you know, it just makes you think how many tens of thousands of people are exactly like this. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely, it's, it's, um, it's, there's so much luck involved, you know, no matter how hard you work and, and what talent you have. Um, and, and of course the, the particularly tragic thing with sport versus any, anything else that you might put that much effort into is that the window is so, is so short before you're, before you're too old. No, that's, and that's the other thing is, I mean, you just capturing three years of his life, you have this endless tap time capsule to return to his childhood and, you know, mm -hmm. his young parents now, I, I thought it was amazing. Sometimes you watch films. I rewatched the Wonder Years series. Mm. And when I began watching that show as a little boy, I was three years younger than the main character, who was, I think, 12. Yeah. And now I'm the same age as the dad, who was 41 when it began. Amazing. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know what? I haven't rewatched Sons of Cuba for many, many years. I, it's, um, you know, it would, it would, it would, it would rake up some very, some very deep feelings for me. But I, w I will one day. Yeah, it's an extraordinary film. I was so impressed when I first saw it, and and I really appreciate your time today to talk about it. Thanks, Andrew. Oh man, it's an absolute pleasure. And uh, yeah, you've been you've been a real supporter of of that film ever since it came out. So thank you for that as well. Pleasure, pleasure. Well, take care and. Uh... Please send along any of the new projects. I'd love to see them. I will. All right. Thanks, Brendan. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to No Happy Endings. It is produced by George Alarcon Swaby, myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and is brought to you by Ring Magazine. Thanks for listening.